Welcome to the Constructor Cast, your agency place for news and views relevant to the construction industry. My name is Scott Barry. I'm your host for this episode. With me today is AGC's own Kevin Cannon, uh, Director of Safety and Health Services. Welcome, Kevin. Yeah, Scott, thank you for having me. So let's just get right down into it. Let's talk about the OSHA rule on respirable crystalline silica. Riveting stuff, I know. But right. Can you tell us uh, why this rule is relevant to the construction industry and construction contractors? Uh, you know, silica is found in numerous building products. Uh, you know, brick, block, um, sand, you know, what we use uh, for backfill of excavations, um, just the mere activity of uh, moving dirt. Um, has the potential to um, generate exposures to silica. So um, this is a rule um, that is pretty much um, a construction rule. You know, it's uh, published as a bifurcated rule, one for general industry and maritime and the other for construction. But the uh, impacts are, are much more considerable for construction. You know, OSHA estimates that this rule will um, uh, cover 2.3 million workers, um, with 2 million of those being in construction. So there's a heavy focus on the construction industry. And again, you know, with our diverse membership, um, I would um, say, you know, there's a, um, a small percentage of those who will not be uh, impacted by this. So can you give me an idea of the genesis of this rule? Like how long has it been, you know, simmering on the burner? Uh, when did it kind of become a thing that uh, we were paying attention to, and then when did it become a thing that really the construction industry needed to watch for? Okay. Um, this has uh, been a long-term effort on the part of uh, OSHA. Um, you know, they started back um, <clears throat> reports, and again, you know, I wasn't around or involved at this time, but, you know, they say the late 90s, they had it on the uh, regulatory agenda. Um, somewhere early 2000, 2003, they uh, initiated the Sabrifa process. Um, and basically, you know, that is where they uh, get together um, a panel of uh, uh, representatives from the federal agencies, but they also engage with, uh, um, <clears throat> excuse me, as they call them, uh, small entity representatives. Um, so at that point in time, um, they presented to this small group of individuals a, a proposal. Um, for them to review and to uh, provide feedback um, to the panel. Um, and so the small entity representatives um, made a, a recommendation to the panel. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the panel is consisting of OSHA folks, SBA, and someone from OMB OIRA. And so um, they made the recommendation that OSHA look at other ways outside of the regulatory arena to address the hazards uh, um, associated with uh, silica. Um, fast forward to, I'd say, late 2009, um, you know, they had a proposal or a semi-proposal. It wasn't very uh, detailed in nature, but it was kind of, this is what we're thinking, and they presented that to the Advisory Committee for Construction Safety and Health. Um, very quick review, um, especially given the scope and impacts of this rule. Um, and, you know, right at that time, um, ACOSH recommended that OSHA move forward. Uh, advisory Committee for Construction Safety and Health. Um, they advised the agency to move forward with the rulemaking. Um, so the first we saw in the way of a proposal was 2013. 
and um, you know AGC with uh, 24 other trade association partners formed the Construction Industry Safety Coalition to um, you know develop uh, a comprehensive response to this proposal, highlighting our concerns, um, and. After the comment period, we participated uh, in the uh, um, in informal public hearings as well. And so that was really the last, um, I guess, uh, opportunity to uh, influence the outcome on the rule. So fast forward to March 25th of 2016, and we have a final rule. So now that we are in a world where a final rule is out there, what exactly is the, you know, sort of the key takeaway with the final rule? What does the final rule say? Um, and I, I, this may be a little reversed on how I'm going to start this, but uh, the final rule did give construction a year to comply. Um, you know, if you look at the regulatory language, it says effective date of June 23rd, 2016. However, they um, are not requiring compliance until June 23rd, 2017. With that said, in the meantime, um, leading up to the um, um, effective compliance date, um, there are a lot of things that uh, contractors are going to have to do. Um, first, um, you know, this rule has what's uh, been labeled as Table 1. Um, and um, OSHA thought this was a way to make compliance a little easier um, as it relates to engineering controls and respiratory protection. So the table lays out 18 um, uh, tasks that are, um, as they say, known to generate uh, high levels of uh, silica exposure. And it, it's from, you know, using stationary saws, um, to using earth moving equipment and uh, and they break it out in time frames less than four hours and greater than four hours so depending upon the duration of the task they have uh, very prescriptive uh, engineering and uh, work practice controls that you must implement as well as sometimes requiring respiratory protection um, and you look at that table and you're going to have to decide if you can fully and properly implement what they're asking. So I guess what I was asking is like the the regulatory ceiling, the permissible exposure limit has been decreased significantly. Now, significantly. Yes. So can you explain that to like what that means? Um, before we had this comprehensive rule, OSHA pretty much uh, um, had just a, a permissible exposure limit for silica. So they didn't um, prescribed. They did not prescribe how you should meet the the previously set PEL. Um, they just said the permissible exposure limit for construction is 250 micrograms per cubic meter. Contractor, how you meet that, that's up to you. Um, again, with this uh, final rule that we have in place now, um, it reduces the uh, permissible exposure limit from 250 to 50, but there's a host of uh, ancillary provisions that they have in place, um, not only to help you achieve um, compliance with the PEL, but also some other um, uh, requirements that they believe um, further protects the health of workers. Okay, uh, so you mentioned that it's 50 micrograms per cubic meter now, yes. and then there's uh, an action level also. Can you explain what that means? Action level of 25, and basically um, what an action level is, um, it, it just triggers certain activities. Um, and those activities are medical surveillance or uh, exposure assessment or monitoring. And that's really what the action level triggers is these two activities. Okay, so 
the kinds of activities, I think you mentioned a few of them kind of in the beginning, the kinds of things that generate silica uh, are cutting, sanding, grinding, those kinds of things. Now, a person who is doing those types of tasks, uh, you mentioned that table one sets up uh, the kinds of controls that should be put in place for each of those kinds of tasks. Is that how table one operates? That's how table one operates. So um, it's split into three, you could say four columns. On the left side, it just identifies the task. And the middle column is the work practice or engineering controls. And that can be um, using uh, integrated water delivery systems to that particular tool, um, using local exhaust uh, um, ventilation to capture the dusk. Um, for earth moving equipment, using dust suppressants or watering down the dirt that is being moved by you know the heavy equipment so that's how the middle column works and then if you fully and properly implement as they say um, all of those requirements that's in that second column from the left then it has it broken out into uh, the time frames and if you're doing the task you know less than four hours some of the tasks say no respiratory protection required if you're doing it more than four hours you may have to uh, use some form of respiratory protection and some tasks, you know, depending on if you're doing them outdoors or in an enclosed space, um, may not require uh, respiratory protection at all. So if I'm a a supervisor on a job site and I have a a crew of workers doing those kinds of things, cutting, grinding, uh, earth moving, etc., the table one is about an eight-hour period of of exposure. If I wanted to rotate my crew, is that going to get me out of having to comply with a lot of the the more um, rigorous uh, controls that are described in table one? It would get you out of complying with the PEO, and that's one of the benefits they say of Table 1 now, is if a contractor follows Table 1, then they will be deemed in compliance with the PEL, or they don't have to comply with the PEL. Um, they, will have, they won't be required to do exposure assessments, and they comply with the respiratory protection requirements as far as the selection and use of uh, respirators. But uh, to your point, um, yes, rotation is something that um, they are allowing. Um, in the uh, proposal, um, they had uh, a requirement that you know strictly prohibited the use of rotation to comply with the PEL. Well, in this rule, um, they kind of uh, reversed course and explained in the preamble that while you know this is uh, not consistent with their previous uh, health standard rulemakings, um, you know they will allow rotation to meet the PEL. Um, as well as uh, um, to um, eliminate the expanded use of respiratory protection. Um, and while that sounds, you know, good, um, a lot of contractors have said, well, you know, basically where am I going to get that second man? You right. know, what was a one-person's job now becomes a two-person job and, you know, things along those lines. So it's not necessarily a practical solution it's, either. Right. Right. So what about things that aren't listed in Table 1? I mean, Table 1 sounds relatively comprehensive, but there are so many different kinds of things that happen in construction Mm -hmm. that, you know, we can predict or even not predict in some cases. So if something is probably a silica-generating activity but is not listed in Table 1, what kinds of things, uh, what kind of options are available to a contractor? Um, uh, Pretty much full compliance with the rest of the rule. Um, You know, and it's not only... um, tasks that are not listed in Table 1, but it's also tasks that are performed that are 
identified in Table 1, but, you know, contractor has not fully and properly implemented, you know, all the work practices and engineering controls and, you know, what that means as far as fully and properly implemented um, has not been uh, um, defined yet. But, you know, for those tasks that you were mentioning, what you would have to do is uh, conduct an exposure assessment um, to determine what the levels are. Um, and so basically, um, you have two options. You can use uh, a combination of exposure monitoring data or objective data um, to say, all right, my task aligns closely to this um, and kind of make an assumption as to what your exposure levels might be. Um, or you can um, go through the whole process of conducting exposure monitoring yourself and that would require either using um, a, a trained individual on staff or um, contracting with an industrial hygienist. And uh, depending upon you know, what's found during that, exp that monitoring um, determines whether you have to continue to monitor um, or you can stop. And basically the only way you can stop is if your uh, reading shows that you're under the action level of 25. If you're between 25 and 50, OSHA requires you to conduct uh, exposure monitoring um, until you're below the action level. If you're above 50, they, um, and this is at a set schedule, and if you're above uh, uh, 50, the PEL, then you have to do the same um, until you have uh, two consecutive uh, results uh, that show that you're below the PEL. But then, I, I mean, it's ongoing. I, I don't think, you know, exposure monitoring is practical in construction. Um, it's, right. Yeah. So, so then we're talking in a world that where exposure monitoring is not practical. You kind of have to make an educated guess based on some database or available data that looks a little bit like the kinds of activity you're doing? Yes, and at this point, um, I'm not familiar with any such database that exists. So OSHA doesn't keep that data on hand? There's no, like a website not. you can go to where, you know, that's DOL approved that says, this is, you know, these are the lists of kinds of activities. Not at all. So nothing out there. So there's not really, in either case, a real practical solution for, for uh, understanding how, uh, when uh, understanding the kinds of monitoring we have to do as construction companies. Yes. Um, the only way I think you could use that uh, first option as far as, uh, um, as they say, the, the performance uh, uh, option is if you've done sampling yourself in the past and you have that data, you know, maintained within your operation. As, fine, as far as finding a, uh, you know, outside source or third party, I'm not aware of any that exists at this point. So we're not even talking about error monitoring that we have to send results to the lab to check something out several weeks later. We're talking about on the site, real, essentially real-time monitoring. Um, yeah, well, how it would work is, you know, you attach a, a, a air monitoring pump to the individual they would go about their task throughout the day. Um, the uh, industrial hygienist or whomever's uh, conducting the uh, monitoring would then collect it, send it off to a laboratory for um, analysis. Um, but, you know, again, what I think is a problem with that is that OSHA requires uh, the results to be communicated to the employee within five days of that monitoring. And what we've heard from a lot of contractors is uh, um, you very rarely, if at all, get your results back uh, within five days. And you can request it, but it would be, I guess, uh, a rush order for right. lack of better terms. Just pay more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So 
let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some more mundane types of things uh, that could be considered silica generating activities, like sanding drywall or like pushing a broom around in a, in a, on a job site. Two things that happen all the time in certain kinds of construction. What kinds of things are, are in place to control silica exposure during those types of activities? Um, starting with sand and drywall, OSHA has come out and in their opinion, based on the data, data that they had available to them, um, they're uh, classifying or they've identified sand and drywalls uh, an activity that would generate low exposures. Um, but then again, um, you know, it, in my opinion, I believe that you would have to prove that what you're, you know, that activity um, does not result in overexposure as far as going above the PEL because that's the task that was listed in Table 1. But again, you know, they've since said, uh, and now that we look at what the data we have available, we don't think this is one that um, would, uh, I guess, routinely overexpose uh, workers who are performing, you know, sanding of drywall. But in, again, um, I would suspect that to be uh, on the safe side, contractors would really need to do some type of exposure assessment. Um, now, um, housekeeping was one um, that you mentioned, and yes, you know, there's a lot of cleanup that's required uh, on construction sites, and um, they do not uh, allow dry sweeping um, unless, uh, unless it's infeasible. Um, so you have two options. You can use a HEPAVAC or wet sweeping, as they call it, um, unless you can prove that it's infeasible. So no more pushing a broom around, <laughs> uh, Unless you can prove unless it's can... infeasible to do so. Wow. That's a big change, I think, for a lot of different construction right. sites, certainly. Um, and I'm not sure what um, wet sweeping is. I mean, you know, my right. simple mind would mean taking water and spraying it down. Now you have mud. And one of the other things that folks are concerned about is when that dries, you know, when the slurry dries, then you still have silica. Right. So let's talk about the kinds of things that a contractor would need to keep on the job site as part of this rule. Uh, so is there some sort of like written plan that you have to put in place? I know in a lot of environmental and other safety uh, types of things, there needs to be like a written control plan uh, for controlling exposure to something or for how to deal with something. Is that similar uh, in this rule? Absolutely. Um, you know, what they've had identified now is the written exposure control plan. Um, and they say the employer, and we're, uh, you know, they've not defined that, you know, on a multi-employer job site, who is it? Is it the general contractor as well as the um, specialty contractor who's performing these tasks? Um, that's not been clarified, but the plan, um, you know, you have to identify the tasks that uh, have the potential or likely to result in overexposure. You have to identify the corrective measures um, that will be implemented to reduce those exposures. Um, and you also have to identify a competent person uh, to implement the program and make uh, regular and frequent inspections of the job site to make sure that the plan is effective. Um, one thing that's in there um, is also um, a requirement that the plan restrict access to certain at, uh, areas of the project when necessary. Um, and as I understand it, um, that when necessary is whenever respiratory protection is required for the task at hand. So you had mentioned earlier on uh, about 
some of the things that had changed from between the proposed rule and the final rule process, you know, things like uh, allowing rotation of, of workers mm -hmm. or um, drywall sanding being in table one in the proposed rule phase, but not uh, any longer being in the final rule phase. Are there any other kinds of big changes that took place during the proposed rule phase that maybe uh, we had commented on and asked to be changed? Um, one that jumps out, which is um, what I call uh, a half victory, and that's uh, the um, the uh, proposal had regulated areas called out specifically in it, and you know you have to establish regulated areas, um, and so we explained to them that that's not something that's workable um, in the construction environment. So that was removed. However, as I just mentioned about the written exposure control plan, they do have something in there that says restrict access when necessary. So it's uh, a win, but not a win, if, you, if that makes sense, because you still have to have some process in place to restrict access to uh, certain areas of the project. Um, one other, and I, and I don't know if um, you know this was a result of um, of uh, anything that we commented on, but there was a change in the uh, medical surveillance requirements, whereas the proposal said anyone that's going to be exposed above the PEL for 30 days or more um, throughout the year would now have to uh, uh, fall in your medical surveillance program. Well, they changed it to say anyone that has to wear a respirator for 30 days or more per year. So that's just a little nuance change. but. Uh, um, um, some of the other uh, victories, um, although we still, you know, don't find Table One to be um, all that workable, um, it uh, in the proposal it had a lot of troublesome notes. Uh, make sure there's no visible dust and things uh, uh, along those lines. And so we said, you know, with a lot of these notes that you've put in to Table One, it really makes it useless. So they've pulled those out and they've changed uh, the language from no visible dust to minimize visible dust. So uh, you can say somewhat that that's a victory. So you just mentioned medical surveillance. Can you kind of talk about what the contractor's responsibility to its employees regarding medical surveillance, uh, what, what those would be? Like, what is medical surveillance? What kinds of things are the uh, contractors going to be responsible for the employees? When does that uh, in, uh, kick in? That kind of thing. Okay. Um, so medical surveillance would, again, as I say, you said, would be triggered. Um, if an employee is required to wear a respirator 30, or 30 days or more out of the year. And so um, what would then be required, um, as they say in the rule, within 30 days of assignment, um, and you, know, you would have to send them to a, a physician or other licensed health care professional. And they would um, uh, do a medical, medical exam examination looking at the individual's medical history as it relates to silica exposure. Um, they would uh, perform a chest x-ray. Um, they would uh, perform pulmonary function testing. And they would do um, latent TB test. Um, and then they would, afterwards, uh, provide a written report to the employee, which contains uh, certain information. And then they would also provide a written report to the employer which would not be as detailed as what the employee receives, but it would identify what, if any, limitations that individual would have as it relates to uh, respirator use. Um, and then that is to be repeated all except for the latent TB test every three years. So now 
now that the rule is out there, and you said compliance is one year from effective date, so people aren't going to be cited from this until June 2017. Correct. So what is AGC doing in the meantime? Like, what is what is the plan of action? Um, currently, we have um, a draft summary in place to just help folks understand what their requirements are. It doesn't, you know, get into great detail. It's kind of uh, just here's what it's asking for more detail. Please visit um, this the the uh, silica rule itself. Um, but in in addition to that, uh, we'll we'll start working within committee and identifying, you know, uh, resources that we think would be useful for contractors to get them um, to understand what they need to do to um, protect their workers and comply with the rule. So is AGC happy with the rulemaking? Um, uh, you know, I talked about some of the things that we might consider victories, but there's still um, significant concerns about the rule within itself. Um, I think primarily um, is the fact that uh, many, if not all, AGC members feel as though the uh, permissible exposure limit of 50 is something that cannot be um, complied with, you know, on a regular basis. So are we pursuing other options? Uh, I mean, the rule as written doesn't seem like it's the kind of thing that the majority of AGC members uh, are happy with or can mm -hmm. live with. Uh, what kinds of options are we pursuing? Okay, um, you know, as you know, there's really nothing we can do as far as the rulemaking process is concerned at this point. Nothing uh, more that we nothing can do. more that we can do um, as it relates to the uh, rulemaking process. Um, but there are options available. Um, you know, there were a handful of uh, construction associations that filed a petition for review, and basically that um, you know it it gets the courts involved and um, hearing and considering, as well as OSHA, what our concerns are with the rule. So you're talking about outright suing the agency on this? Uh, yes, that's a more direct way to put it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're in the process of a lawsuit uh, against OSHA. Uh, the briefs have moved to the, uh, or the, the, the suit rather, has moved to the D.C. Circuit Court, if I understand correctly. So we're in the, pro in, in the, like, in the middle of that process now, like it's beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's um, it's starting, and you know, uh, we're now just uh, trying to figure out the timeline, um, and we should have a, a good understanding as to um, you know what we're looking at going forward, um, and that'll all be you know information that will be provided to us uh, by the courts. I assume we're pursuing some kind of legislative fix uh, to help contractors get relief while this works its way through the court process? Yes, there are some efforts. Uh, we, as well as uh, uh, the uh, other construction trade associations, have been meeting, discussing Hill strategy and what we think might be the best approach. So AGC is definitely pursuing a multi-pronged approach to solve uh, this rulemaking. Yes. Great. Well, thanks to AGC's Kevin Cannon uh, for helping educate us on this topic, and thanks to you all for listening to the AGC Constructor Cast. Join us next time.